Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Damien Chazelle's new original movie musical, La La Land. Set in modern day Los Angeles, the film explores the themes of life, love, and the difficulties of pursuing your dreams through the tale of an aspiring actress and a jazz musician. Played by Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, the two embark on a whirlwind romance as they struggle to make ends meet and find success in a city known for crushing hopes and breaking hearts. In addition to La La Land, Mr. Chazelle's credits include the feature films Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench and Whiplash, which received Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound Mixing in 2015. Whiplash also garnered Mr. Chazelle Oscar nominations for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture. Following a recent screening of La La Land at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Chazelle spoke about the joys and challenges of making the film with director John Favreau. Listen on as Mr. Chazelle discusses how he made the city of Los Angeles its own character in the film, how he shot the film's opening dance sequence on one of LA's busiest highways, and how he worked to pay homage to the classic Hollywood movie musicals while still updating La La Land for a modern context and audience. Thank you so much. You're too kind, thank you. <laughs> Looks like they liked it, huh? <laughs> thank you so much. This is, uh, wow, I've always dreamed of showing in this theater. This is, uh, Look, there's the, it's so cool. Anyway. <laughs> um, where to start? Uh, I just, this is the second time I saw it. And they tapped me on the shoulder with, a, with like five minutes left in the last montage. I'll try not, I, this is going to be podcasted, so I'll be very careful about spoilers. Because uh, okay. I don't want to ruin the experience for anybody. Um, but it was five minutes left, it was the montage. They tapped me on the shoulder, says it's five minutes left. Um, would you like to uh, leave now? I would, I, and I was just shooing them away. I was like <laughs> fighting te tears streaming down my cheeks. Uh, so powerful. And also I had seen it at home. Uh, and now it's my first time seeing it with a crowd. And boy, doesn't it make you feel like this is still uh, a relevant medium to be in a theater like this, watching it all together. <laughs> a movie like this. Because much like the music in the film, I think it's the communal experience of sharing it uh, with the people around you, even though you're all quiet. There's an energy that takes the room over, especially something like this. And and much like music, uh, there's a, there's a line in here that I think John Legend says, which is, "Jazz is is about uh, it's about the future. It's not about the past." He, imp he implies that Ryan Gosling's character is too nostalgic, but the tone of this film and the balance of of the old and the new, to me, is what is truly surprising. And I'd love for you to speak a little bit about the way that you deal with that. Clearly, you put those lines in his mouth. Is that something you feel? Where do you weigh in on on cinema and the balance of of, of being uh, of of the old and the new? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, yeah, I, I have, I think, like that scene you're referring to is definitely um, sort of a debate I've had in my head, um, you know, during much of my life and not necessarily about jazz, but about movies in general, you know, but I, but I am a jazz lover and I obviously, you know, love movies and I grew up loving movies. I love musicals. So I, I was from, from a somewhat, you know, early point in my, you know, teen years was kind of aware that I was somewhat in certain ways anachronistic, like down to, you know, uh, uh, I played drums as a, as a, uh, as a teenager mainly. Those were my kind of chief drums. You should make a movie about years. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's an idea. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, but very quickly, I became, the drummers I became obsessed with were the drummers from the 30s and 40s and 50s. And for whatever, whatever reason, I had this book about jazz drummers of that era. And I tried to, like, like buy old drum kit heads and, and like, tilt my snare drum and try to make my, my kit look like an old kit. And, um, and so I kind of, like, now I don't play music as much anymore. But, but I guess I've always, I've known that about myself, that I have that sort of tendency to uh, have what you'd call old-fashioned tastes. Um, and uh, and and so it's it's that sort of uh, it's that challenge a little bit, isn't it? You know, where you 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 want to preserve what you grew up loving, you want to preserve what inspired you to kind of go into whatever field it is, but you know you're not actually helping that field unless you push it forward in some way. You know, um, I think uh, um, I think there is that kind of that sort of give or take. And I think musicals, uh, certainly here, the musicals, once again, that I loved the most were musicals of the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, uh, and some of the French New Wave musicals of the 60s. Um, but uh, but that that was the era that I really wanted to kind of embrace and dive into. And, and uh, But I wanted to also make it feel relevant and modern and about my life or any of our lives in LA today. Um, so it was constantly being aware of that sort of balance and knowing that that you know, I had to make sure I didn't slip too far into. Uh, into and the I past. think it doesn't feel like this could have been cracked out of a time capsule. It definitely feels of the moment, which I think is what makes it so interesting for me and for any of the directors out here. The tools that you used you used a lot of classic tools. A lot of, I was surprised we had spoken earlier about because I'm always, I'm trying to figure out the visual effects, and there's really not a lot of them. There's a lot of very old techniques here which I found very interesting. You're using lighting and, 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 uh, and music and editing and, and, and the, um, the way you covered scenes and, of course, the color palette. It, it, it's, uh, it's wonderful to show how many uh, tools are actually at a director's disposal because these aren't often used to the extent that you've used them here. And, and then there's a lot of uh, nods of the uh, tips of the hat to old music, but also to old movies. Uh, was that something that you planned to begin with? I mean, I caught, maybe I'm wrong, but I think Marilyn Monroe's dress, the blue dress was the same cut that Marilyn Monroe was wearing, and I saw um, the uh, vertigo green in the yeah. apartment scene, and there were a lot of things that, for a film fan, there's a lot of little Easter eggs in there yeah. that had tremendous effect uh, to the way you watch the film. At what point did you lay those references in and the coverage. I mean, I guess those would sort of, for the most part, those were just uh, sort of ideas that would emerge, you know, as we were prepping or as I was collaborating with, you know, the crew or as we were shooting. Um, from the outset, it was more just, you know, knowing that I wanted the movie to have a little bit, a little bit of that Hall of Mirrors kind of feeling, where, uh, you know, um, 
like there's 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 someone who uh, and I forget I'm gonna I completely forget who, but some critic or historian at some point wrote about Casablanca, um, you know, making a case for it as a great film. Obviously, um, talking about how. You know, it's the kind of movie that we now, you know, we sort of look at and think of maybe because it's also become so sort of part of the culture and in some ways you could argue it's become ossified as a result that you look at it and you see a lot of uh, conventions or cliches or tropes, whatever you want to call it, whatever word you want to use, but that there's something about that movie specifically where you feel like they're all talking to each other. Mm -hmm. You feel like it's a movie where somehow the cliches stop being cliches because they're engaged with each other and there's some kind of beauty there. Yeah, it's interesting because there's so much of it feels improvisational. Clearly, there's tremendous uh, chemistry in your cast, not to mention how talented they are, dancing, singing, all of those things, uh, which is feels like a bit of a throwback to people who were trained in the studio system to have that full array of talents where they can jump from one mm -hmm. genre to the other. Here, it happens within the film. And so what's curious to me is that it's all, you know, you talk about the improvisation of jazz, and certainly in filmmaking, there's opportunity for that. But if you look at your camera work, you know, for example, the way that the, the long uh, single takes and single shots in, in his apartment in the beginning and then breaking it down into coverage, the color palette changing, that's all very deliberate. That's all planned. And so uh, you seem to follow more in the tradition of like Hitchcock where you're actually uh, planning everything. Do you do it through storyboards? Is it yeah. through conversation? Talk to me it's, about your process of what led to what I mean, we saw here. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's it starts initially with just uh, so. I mean, in, in this case, really, the very beginning, uh, other than the spine of the story, was a lot of the music. You know, so as I was actually fleshing out the story and writing the script, um, Justin Hurwitz, my uh, composer, was already writing score melodies, and those were, you know, informing visual ideas I had. I was giving, I was describing to him how I wanted certain scenes to feel visually that would inspire him. Um, so, uh, and what you kind of, what resulted in that was a very like visually descriptive script, um, which, which on like the writing side of my end, I often get, uh, get for <laughs> it's like how, like how like endlessly endless descriptions in my script. So, so like how, how long of a script page wise was this? Well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't super, it was, you know, a hundred pages or something, but it was, um, but, um, you know, you imagine like a scene like the end, there's not a lot of dialogue there's no dialogue so uh um so i just wanted to try to kind of give you like reading it wanted to give you the feeling of actually seeing it as i was writing it so, that, so if i were to read your script it would say each shot that would follow and what to, and what the mute and you would understand at that extent, point what yeah. the music was as you rewrote it yeah for sure yeah so that that would you know and so to an extent the broad strokes at least you would kind of get a sense of that and then from that then i would start storyboarding um i started by storyboarding the numbers the musical numbers, um, and then uh, my DP Lena Sandgren got involved, and we what, what uh, a fantastic job! Yeah, I mean, cinematographer no, he's, he's, did. Uh, he's absolute. And, and as we were discussing, uh, the whole DGA crew. I mean, what a what great ads you must have had on a film of this size. To <laughs> I was get, yeah to get. I was beyond lucky. Peter and, Cohn and uh, and and his entire team. It was just. Uh, uh, I mean, you can imagine watching this. This movie is sort of a. I feel like an AD's nightmare. And spe <laughs> so. Speaking of which, that opening number on the high, on the freeway, I'm trying to look at how did you? Oh yes, let's hear it for that too. That's it. It got a it got a nice round of applause uh, after after it played as well as well it deserved. But I when we spoke, I was like, so, but that's a lot of green screen you must have used. And you explained that that wasn't the case. Will you talk about uh, a case study that that scene in particular? What was? Yeah, it? yeah. So that was a. Um, uh, 
I mean, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be, uh, you know, to be like pretty much the entire movie shot in a real location. And, and, and the, you know, the idea was to do this movie in such a way that you would set numbers that normally would have been done on soundstage environments, uh, or at least in the older musicals we were drawing from, um, but set them this time in real L.A., but almost try to make it look fake, if that makes sense. With, would, with the would, cars, the car colors and the So in that case, costumes. it would be coordinating the car colors. In the case of the, you know, some of the dance numbers at night, it would be shooting it, you know, within that half-hour window where the sun is just setting and it looks like green screen. Wait, so um, you, you really shot, first of all, you really shot that freeway scene on a freeway. You were able to shut down a piece yeah, of a yeah, highway. Yeah, yeah. And now you're telling me that the, the dance number on, Mah on Mulholland uh, was actually done <laughs> it at, at Magic Hour? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, <laughs> yeah, Magic Hour lasts, it's not an hour, it's misleading, it lasts about so, 10 so or 12 misleading. minutes, right? <laughs> so you had to shoot that whole dance number in, in, in probably about 20 minutes then. Uh, well, to be fair, so uh, so yeah, I guess I'll, I'll jump back to the traffic number in a second, but because this is funny, the, the Magic Hour thing, it's, it's uh, you know, to be fair, yeah, so you get maybe half an hour um, now. Uh, we kind of, by that point, knew, you know, Ryan and Emma had been rehearsing a lot. We kind of knew where they would hit their sweet spot. It right. wouldn't be take one. It maybe would be take three. Right. Take three and four would be. So we'd kind of time it to try to line up. We would start shooting a little before the sun is quite where we actually want it. But just uh, I'm sweating of, just hearing you explain yeah. this. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and you just kind of hope that your <clears throat> that your best take for them lines up with the best take for the sun because you can't really. Of course. I can yell at Ryan and Emma. I can't yell at the sun. So um, uh, and uh, yeah. So we we you know so that number we we went on you know Ryan and Emma had rehearsed for months leading up to, up to that but we got on set and and you know in the morning or late morning and started rehearsing the camera move um, and get getting that shot which is on crane exactly to where it needed to be first with our dance doubles then with Ryan and Emma and then and then it's like a you know you probably I mean it's like a it's like it feels like a race where suddenly it's like like Linus would be standing there kind of almost like yes it's about to be a perfect uh, color and then you know he runs to the camera and go and we start shooting and and it's a six minute shot so you can you know you know you only have like four or five takes to do um and so we went back there the next night we want to I think the move the take in the movie is take I think again, take three of the second night. So I'm glad we wow. had the second night, but um, but it was kind of like that. Uh, you know, we didn't have that problem obviously with the traffic number. We had full days, but there, you know, you you, it's an easy pass ramp, so you can't shut it down at infinitum. You know, so we had a weekend basically to go on there and fill it with cars, and that's where that I think even more so than the than the hilltop dance, which was you know timing very difficult, but at least a limited number of elements. The the freeway. Again, I really have to sort of give it up for for you know for Peter Cohn and for uh, his entire team, as well as for the you know the Teamsters, the production designer, just the the logistics behind kind of getting those cars all in place and camera equipment all in place and people all in place in time. You know, so we all show up there where it's still dark, so that we can be rehearsing as soon as it's dawn, shooting as soon as the light is actually kind of decent, right. um, and uh, and and dealing with the you know the safety concerns. It was a heat wave. Dealing with uh, you know any of the number of things that just can go wrong when you're in a real environment, uh, but obviously making it look fun on screen. Sure, that's, and it was really invisible uh, in the audience. It feels like a it feels like a, a dream, and and that's really a testament to being able to have it so that we we weren't aware of any of that, and I assumed it was done in a controlled right. environment. 
And also, uh, how wonderful to do a film like this in Los Angeles. What yes, a love letter yes. to the city, and, it was, and what a wonderful, yeah. That was wonderful. It was, it was, it was crazy to me, actually, to, what, to the, the extent to which, um, you know, because I didn't have as much of a frame of reference, uh, not having shot, uh, you know, films in the city for that long, the extent to which, you know, crew members had literally never, or not at least in decades, shot a film in L.A. And these are, you know, obviously for the most part, crew members who live in L.A., right. you know, and so the idea of actually shooting in their city, um, and it's not to say we didn't have the, you know, the ideas what was it? Okay, let me hear it. So, so it's days. called La La Land, and they wanted to shoot Santiago. It. Was was uh, Chile was presented? Um, uh, what was uh, there was actually the 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 most realistic sounding one, which still made me want to you know throw up. But the, the, was was the idea of of you know a limited like a week or something of run and gun exteriors in L.A. and then yeah. we shoot all the interiors and try to make it as much interior as possible in you know, Another city. Toronto or something. Um, yeah. Well, it's nice that there's a bit of a, a, a resurgence uh, in, in Los Angeles yeah. production, which yeah. I think uh, it's wonderful for you know, the tradition of this town, you know, uh, but it's also wonderful for what it offers creatively uh, because it's such a, it's a, it's cliche to say, but it is such a character in this. And it's interesting that uh, for me in particular, it was very uh, striking because, you know, 20 years ago, I'm, on the same locations uh, when I'm doing my yeah, early work swing. with yeah. swingers. Yeah. And and then L.A. Story came before that, and you look at like a documentary like L.A. Plays Itself, yeah. and you see all of these locations that you have in there with uh, Angel's Flight and, the, yeah. of course, the observatory. It was, so, uh, it was so carefully curated that anybody who loves movies, it, it, um, what you benefit from is that each little visual reference unleashes all of this... Um, emotional connection to what preceded it and here are these characters who are once again living out the dream of coming to california to to chase down the thing that they find their passion within and and to be able to tell that story again in a way that feels so fresh and so surprising and so emotionally engaging i think is a real testament to uh to to your skill and 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 of course the cast which i would be remiss not to talk about Clearly, a, a tremendous talent, tremendous chemistry. And uh, how did you arrive at your at your at your leads? I know they've worked together before. How did you How it, did you end up engaging them? It was uh, it was luck, really, um, because uh, in the sense that it actually wound up, you know, in their labs at the time that it did. Because back when I was first writing this, this would have been you know 2010, 2011. Um, I had my kind of pie in the sky idea of, you know, wouldn't this be great for Ryan and Emma together? Um, it was right about the time that Crazy Stupid Love had like just come out. So the idea of them as a couple was, was um, you know, and they were younger back then. And actually the characters when I first wrote them were a little younger. Um, and then six years went by of trying to get the movie off the ground. Okay. And, uh, um, uh, and it just kind of never occurred to me um, realistically that the road would ever lead back to Ryan and Emma at a certain point. But I wound up meeting them, you know, in person, um, almost by happenstance in the wake of Whiplash uh, when we were kind of, you know, I was sort of doing the circuit on that um, while Emma was doing uh, Birdman. Um, and Emma was also doing Cabaret on Broadway. So she was in a musical state of mind. I got her the script. Um, uh, independently, I also at a certain point got Ryan the script. And this idea of not just them individually, but them kind of re, you know, returning as a pair, which is very traditional to Hollywood yeah, too. I, yeah. And and then the coverage too reminded me so that 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 head to toe dance coverage. I mean, that's a right. 
in and of itself is well, you, go ahead you, well i was just gonna say I mean, you have to one thing i love about you know that, that we do kind of lose a little bit i think in um uh or that we've lost a little bit in 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 a lot of cinema is that idea of how much you can tell with the full body you know the you know if you look at chaplin or obviously you look at friend and ginger you look at the great musicals of the 50s um as well you see full body movement. Uh, obviously, you see dancing from head to toe, but you also see what blocking can do and what you know, what the actual arrangement of bodies in space, as opposed to to just relying on editing, um, to to tell that story. That you know, the fact that you can say a lot emotionally by the fact of someone being in the foreground and moving to the background, or someone being left a frame, moving to right a frame. That whole idea that used to be absolutely elemental, and you see it, you know, is is the building block of all the great. Hollywood filmmakers like Preminger and, and Vincent Minnelli and Stanley Donnan and Hitchcock is kind of uh, um, is is uh, it's not as integral to how we make films anymore. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, you know, I say this having made Whiplash, which doesn't use any of that. It's a completely edited movie, so I'm you know. Um, I, but each story has each its story own requires its own. For tools. this, for this, it really felt to me like this was a movie that needed to kind of breathe in a way that Whiplash didn't. This was a movie where. Uh, you know, it needed to kind of allow that sort of uh, uh, fluidity of movement, and that means you need actors who can actually sustain those kind of shots and that kind of those kind of wide angles. And uh, Ryan and Emma are able to again act with not just their faces, but with their entire physique in a way that's really, whether they're dancing or not, that I just find extraordinary. I I think um, it clearly uh, uh, came across and and just synergized with your vision and and really made it a. Uh, wonderful as i said standing up to multiple viewings i i was swept away with it the first time and now this time i've watched it i'm really starting to see all the little things that which is it honestly is a really a testament to the film that you you lose you stop watching it as as though it's something you do and you feel like just an audience member like how i felt when i first would go to the movies and made me fall in love with it and and uh and i think that's a I think that's an important thing uh, to to keep in mind that it's this is something that ultimately, with all this technical, all these technical aspects, has to be something that ultimately makes the audience feel and sweeps them away. And especially here, you're introducing a language that to many of us is familiar, but as you bring it out to new audiences who've never been exposed to the classics that influence you, how do you find that it plays to to crowds of people who are uh, who might not be as film savvy? Have you had that experience yet? I mean, we've had a wonderful experience of just bringing the movie out to the world, you know, through festivals, uh, you know, and through kind of uh, uh, screenings in, in various cities around the country or the world. And it's it's been, um, it is that weird thing, you know, where a movie that, that for so long has been this sort of um, felt like this little kind of personal, uh, almost private sort of thing, you know, that you share with the people that you made the movie with, but not really beyond that. Um, then becomes something that's, you know, hopefully you hope bigger than you, you know, that takes on a life that's not just your own. So I, I never knew whether this would, you know, whether this would remain just a private thing or whether it would. Well, connect, now that it's you know. hitting the world, how are you? Are you feeling it's, that? That it's uh, uh, no, I'm feel. I am feeling it connecting, and I'm feeling. Um, and I guess I mean one of the nicest things is feeling it connecting, you know, to different ages and different. Well, you I know, know my my 13 year old daughter. Uh, I saw it with her, and, and then she wanted to come. <laughs> and bring a friend as well, right? So I love so that. That's, that's that's my favorite. To thing me, it's, ever. <laughs> it's one. It, to me, it it is wonderful because what it means is that much like with the jazz that you talk about, right? It's about passing the passion down and the appreciation. And first, you have to show them a good version of it. 
as you say about you know uh, Emma's character here, uh, didn't think she liked jazz because she mm-hmm. the jazz she heard was not what what Ryan's character would consider <laughs> jazz. Yeah, okay. And then when you hear good jazz, uh, that's you're, you you begin proselytizing, and and then the, the traditions carry on. And I think that's yeah. that's part of I I, I think what's important and about I, about what you do. Um, and, and I, yeah, and I think that like musicals get a bad rap sometimes, you know, like like like, like jazz does. That there's certain right. I mean, there's certain kind of these art forms that, um, for whatever reason, I don't know, have have developed like a, a perception in many people's minds of what they have to be, you know. And sometimes all you have to do is just kind of convince them, oh, it doesn't have to be that, you know, or or um, or it can be accessible in a way that you didn't think it could be. I, I was always very, you know, cognizant and, and hopeful with this movie that it wouldn't just be, um, you know, a movie that only I would, would kind of enjoy. Well, you never know. It's, again, like the characters speak about here, you kind of have to make it something you feel excited about. That's your best shot at everybody else getting excited too. And I think, look, anytime somebody takes a chance like this and does something that clearly doesn't pitch as something that's people are necessarily comfortable with because there's other movies like it and you take that chance and you throw your heart into it and then uh, it gets so well received it's to me it it, it's a it's inspiring and i and i'm so happy to see it happen already with the reception that it's gotten so uh congratulations on that um yeah to, to, to get back to the the technical aspects a little bit because this is kind of a a a crowd of people who are mostly uh, filmmakers. Uh, was I, am I correct to, to th- what I seem to notice here is that a lot of it was done to playback, right? But then there were also some singing, I think, in the apartment, the duet that they do seemed to be yeah. sung live. So was there a mixture of those two? Yeah, techniques? I mean, it, it was uh, the, the big dance numbers we did to playback, the sort of traditional way. Um, and then, uh, and then any any time where we scaled things down and it was more intimate, you know, wh- for example, Ryan and Emma at the piano, or uh, or Emma's audition at the end of the the movie, we would just do it live um, and um, and just kind of, you know, try to give the actors again that that room to breathe, that room to sort of like something like the audition number at the end. Um, it wasn't just Emma doing it live. She also she wasn't doing it to a prefixed, you know, pre-record or playback in, you know, that was go, you know, of a, of the backing track that was in her ear, because uh, we want that's a rubato song. We wanted her to be able to set the tempo. So she. So was there was so piano they, playing? Yeah, off? just right. Justin was like, you know, if there were a curtain, he'd be behind the curtain. He was like, literally just just off the corner of the set, uh, you know, playing that's into incredible. a piano with a with a, an electric piano, and so she had a little bug in her ear that only she could hear. Um, but he was listening to her in a way more than she was listening to him. That sure. The idea was that she had to tell us when she was going to go from dialogue to singing. She had to tell us when, you know, what tempo she was going to take it at, uh, what pitch. You know, I mean, uh, not what pitch in terms of musically, but just what uh, um, what emotional volume. Um, and we had to listen to that. So, it, you know, it's it's sometimes you need to kind of pre-design everything to a T and execute that, and other times you need to let the actors guide you and i think that's true even in a musical as as well as it is in a realist movie it, it worked incredibly well uh let's talk about the stage work too because there's so much interesting art direction going on and lighting and camera work that all worked together it felt very exciting and fresh but also felt like it owed it's a inspiration to musicals of the past could you speak a little bit about your approach to that and how that was accomplished yeah i i had a um uh, brilliant production designer david wasco who uh 
who's just, um, I mean, he's one of the great production designers, but I think in general, but really an expert. You on think LA. about more crit, uh, 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 more gritty independent films yes, from exactly. the '90s, right? And the Tarantino work, exactly. And, yeah. He did all the all the you know L.A. set Tarantino movies. Uh, he did Collateral after that. Um, you know, he 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 gets L.A. in a way that. Um, that I think what I loved about his approach and what I wanted the approach on this movie to be, what we talked about a lot was using real L.A., you know, um, and even using the parts of L.A. other than Griffith and such, you know, that aren't necessarily glamorous, uh, aren't don't necessarily seem movie ready. And but, but feel authentic to, feel to authentic, us Angelinos yeah, who, and, who and, uh, love the city. And trying to show them in a way that's both honest and yet, in this movie, a little magical, you know. And so he would just add these touches. Um, I would have him kind of... Uh, I, I gave him sort of ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous demands. Like I loved the old lampposts that you see in Singing, Singing in the Rain. Um, so I decided that L.A. in our movie should just have nothing but those lampposts. So, so poor David Wasco and his team had to literally carry these like lampposts on their, like every set we would go. We shot sixty locations or sixty-five locations, you know, and every location it's like, oh yeah, where are lampposts? Ah, right, right there. And they would just come in. But I Sorry. think, but you're saying it, but I felt it. I think it changed the way. The film played. I mean, it's that it, it's about prioritization, especially when you have limited time and resources. Right. And uh, as a director, you have to decide what those rules are and what the important rules are. And something that might seem like just a detail that uh, might not seem that important in the planning phase when you see it in the film, it definitely that little bit of a of a spin to the scene helps bring it into that nostalgic fantasy world even though I know those locations are, are real and are there and are current. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're about to wind it down. I, I want to give you an opportunity to speak about anything or let, let uh, the audience here know anything that you think is important or, or something I didn't, I didn't hit on uh, because this is you're never going to get a crowd of people who are more receptive and uh, appreciative the of pressure what pressure is on. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, uh, well, I... I yeah, I mean, I guess the, uh, <clears throat> again, given, you know, that we're, we're speaking here at, uh, you know, obviously about technical stuff and, and speaking here at the DGA, um, you know, just, uh, again, I think what, what was hopeful to me with, the, you know, what I hoped about with, with this movie was that we would be doing things that were very difficult logistically, but that wouldn't seem difficult on screen. You know, that to me was another ideal that the musicals of, of past, um, held to, which is that you don't really see the work, but there's, um, but I kind of think back and I, uh, you know, especially when it comes to, uh, to, uh, you know, to Peter Cohn and Michael Bug and my ADs and my UPMs who just really kind of actually had to do the, the heavy lifting of logistically making stuff like the traffic number or any of these musical numbers or doing 65 locations in 40 days, any of that stuff, making that work, um, is, uh, is to me just incredible. So I, I, I'm kind of very cognizant, especially at the DGA, that I'm sitting here, you know, on there. Um, well, let uh, me know, let me speak on behalf of the audience and the DGA and thanking you so much for sharing this film with us and for making it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, guys. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, 
or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.